The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome, everyone. So tonight is week six of seven classes for our summer course, where we're studying the Buddhist teachings on the Noble Eightfold Path. So we have one more meeting next Monday night, and... Um, you might have noticed in the email I sent everybody this afternoon, I did put the link uh, if you'd like to support the center and support the teacher. So you can take a look at that. And uh, usually I invite somebody from the community, someone in the class, to share their reflections. So if anybody would like to write something that I could send out with the to the email list, just your own reflection of how you participate in this system of dana, which is the Pali word for giving and generosity. And we think of it, especially at Common Ground, as this circle of receiving and giving and learning to do that with practice more freely so that both the giving and the receiving is a cause for joy in our hearts. And it's not just in terms of your relationship with the center, but we can really do this practice, the study of dana. Um, ideally, in every every part of our life, with our partners, with our job scene, even if there's a specific contract, right? There still can we can cultivate this feeling of showing up fully, giving fully, freely, generously, because it feels good. It's an actual cause for joy, and whatever comes back our way, we receive that freely as best we can. So just let me know if you'd like to share something for the community and I'll um, connect with you and uh, send that out to everybody in next week's email. And I did send a number of readings if you'd like. And next week we'll talk about samadhi and then come full circle back to wisdom. So the three aspects of the Eightfold Path, wisdom and wise intention, first category, Sila, ethical conduct, which is wise action, wise livelihood, wise speech, and what we've been doing recently, the general category is samadhi, this powerful stability, clarity of the heart, which involves wise effort, wise mindfulness, and wise concentration. And so we'll talk about that tonight. And for those of you who stay for the small groups, you can chat about what you've been learning about this stabilizing of present moment awareness with wise effort under this deepening understanding of how to connect with phenomena, with the present moment. This is mindfulness, keeping the present moment in mind and how to stabilize that in a way that sets in motion this really uh, powerful clarity that sees things as they are which makes insight, the deepening of wisdom, unavoidable. Like the Buddha says somewhere in the suttas, just as the Ganges, the big river, flows onward to the ocean, right? the heart flows towards the deepening of wisdom, towards insight, when samadhi is well established, when there's this profound balance, stability of mind. Some of you 
Maybe many of you have heard the beginning of the Buddha's discourse on mindfulness, the Four Foundations of Mindfulness, where it said, the Buddha said, this is the direct path for the purification of beings, for the overcoming of sorrow and lamentation, for the disappearance of pain and distress, for the attainment of the right method, and for the realization of unbinding. In other words, the four foundations of mindfulness. Which four? There is the case where a practitioner remains aware of the activities of the body and the mind in and of themselves, ardent, alert, mindful, putting aside greed and distress with reference to the world. So, the four foundations, it's really the activity of the body and the mind. The Buddha just organizes it in a particular way to help us see what we're not seeing. So when he talks about mindfulness of the body, he really means not just coming to the body, because when we come to the body, we're coming with the kind of conditioning, the habits of misperceiving, basically, misunderstanding the body, arrogantly thinking we know the experience of the body. So when I connect with my body, I'm mostly connecting with my deluded or misperceiving habits. And so I feel my body, I know my body, but I'm mostly knowing my idea, the ideas that I have about my body, not in and of itself, not the body in and of itself. So these teachings around mindfulness really are helping us to correct our habits of perception, our habits of perceiving. Same thing with feeling, which is an aspect of the mind, how we uh, interpret experience as pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. And to learn to see the ephemeral nature of the feeling, the pleasantness, unpleasantness, or neutrality of experience. We might have a really pleasant experience, you know. I took a nice bath earlier in the day, it was very pleasant. But, you know, it doesn't last very long. And even in the bath, it's nice for a certain amount of time, but then surprisingly I want to get up and out, you know. So this is the thing. When we imagine having a nice meal, having a nice experience, we imagine it, we perceive or imagine that pleasant experience or the unpleasant as if it's going to really kill me if it's unpleasant or, you know, I just can't handle it. Or it's really going to take care of me if we think we're going to be experiencing something pleasant. But when we really look honestly, directly, immediately at ex the experience of feeling tone, it doesn't really last that long to end up being that meaningful. We've had so many pleasant experiences. What's the significance right now of all those pleasant experiences we've had? We've had, probably all of us, some pretty horrendous, deeply, deeply unpleasant experiences. I'm not saying that they don't live on in some way. I'm just saying that how we imagine the next pleasant or the next unpleasant experience, how we imagine it's going to impact us, is much bigger than the actual impact of a pleasant or unpleasant experience. So a lot of the Buddha's teachings on mindfulness 
or helping us to actually do mindfulness, to be mindful. I shouldn't say do mindfulness, about, but understand what mindfulness is. Understand, as I said in the guided meditation, that there is this natural and impersonal capacity of our heart, mind, to be mindful. But we're, the mind tends to be involved in so much activity, like mental proliferation, that we often remain unaware, not recognizing this capacity to be mindfully aware. So the work of mindfulness then is to correct our habits of misperceiving so we know what it is to be mindful, to experience this moment in and of itself, and I'll talk about that tonight, and then to keep that capacity to be connecting to things, to be intimate with the moment in and of itself, as it actually is, to keep that in mind, to keep that capacity to be mindful, as opposed to swept away by mental proliferation, thinking, how to keep that way of being in mind, to keep that capacity of being present in mind, recognizing the present moment over and over. In a way, this this is not a small thing, you know, um, and even for some of us, you know, who've been at this practice for a long time, I find it, you know, I think it's now been 37 years, 30, 38 years now, I've been a pretty devoted student of mindfulness practice, and, um, but I find it really useful in my personal practice to, uh, in a sense, be clarifying or remembering what it is, like to be really curious about the experience of mindfulness and to never presume that the concept or the idea that I know mindfulness has, is really the thing in itself. So in that sense, mindfulness is, if, if anything, it's a fresh, it's always fresh, it's always new. That's like one of its characteristics, right? It's this capacity of recognizing this is being known. And that's never been done before, right? This moment being known has never been done before. So however the mind might conceptualize what mindfulness is, the actual experience of being mindful, recognizing the present moment, will always have that very fresh, alive, wild, and not capable of being contained by a concept, captured, right? Never gets stale in that way. And, you know, as someone following these teachings in, from early Buddhism, these teachings of this person that we refer to as the Buddha, our teacher, really, even though we've never met the guy, of course, and these teachings, you know, amazingly have been passed on through so many different cultures for such a long time, it's surprising how 
they still seem so relevant to my own subjective experience, even though, of course, here I am in a very different time, a very different culture, and yet the way the Buddha articulated the path, the practice, you know, it was so um, to the essence of our mind, our heart, that it it's sort of universal, the way he under, came to understand the mind, the activity of the mind and heart. It, it was, in a sense, beneath the level of cultural difference, let's say. In that sense of being relevant to me, even though such a long time ago, such a different cultural situation between what the Buddha had and what I have. And yet, as I read, as I reflect upon and use these teachings, I really, they really help me directly understand my own experience. And what we come to, I think, over time is this connecting with reality, connecting not in terms of our mental interpretation of what's happening to me or who I am or what I'm doing right now, but connecting more directly with what we say in Buddhism, Dhamma, the way it is, the truth of the moment, in a non-conceptual way, that's actually our devotional object. So in a you know perfect world at our Dharma center, you know, we wouldn't have this sort of traditional statue of the Buddha, and we have Mahapajapati on our altar to the Buddha's, the person who raised the Buddha, who became the first bhikkhuni and one of the fully enlightened, fully awakened beings, one of the early leaders of the bhikkhunis. Um, we have those things on our altar, beautiful altar, but, you know, ideally, we'd have reality on our altar. <laughs> You know, because that's actually what we're devoted to. We're really devoted to this natural, impersonal capacity here and now to connect, to meet, to open to the way it is, to Dhamma. And, um, you know, sometimes they have the eight spokes of a wheel that represents the path, that that sort of, as the devotional object was there in, in early Buddhism, they didn't really have any statues for the first number, couple hundred years. It was really the Greek influence from Alexander the Great uh, conquering a lot of that part of the world, and they were into their statues, and so the, to sort of compete, the Buddhist culture started to have statues of things that were significant to them, like the Buddha. But early on, it was like an empty seat. It was the wheel of the Dhamma. That's how the path, the practice was represented. Because that's actually our devotional object. What we're so grateful for, what we over time learn to so deeply appreciate, is this capacity to connect. And to keep that capacity of connecting, of being open, being intimate, being touched by life, being enlivened by the wildness of the present moment, and mostly to learn. Like this is our, it's our devotional object and it's also our teacher, it's our guru in, a, in the real sense of the word, because it's going to teach us everything we need to learn, which is basically 
to abandon clinging, abandon grasping. And it isn't you or I that abandon grasping. There's a natural process for the abandoning of grasping, and it all it's all about becoming intimate, being devoted to, deeply respecting, willing to listen to the present moment. Because the reality, not our idea of the present moment, the conceptual projection we have, the mental interpretation we have, but the raw immediacy of the present moment, connecting, 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 sustaining that raw, devoted, patient, fearless, calm, relaxed, undefended, curious, interested presence with reality, the present moment, completely transforms the heart from a heart that is addicted to all, all of our little and big ways of attaching and identifying and reacting and struggling. And, you know, as I've been talking about in the weekly practice groups, some of you maybe have been listening to some of those talks, but recently I've been talking about this pattern of domination and helplessness and the tendency to swing back and forth between you know, just as a general relationship to our experience in our world, thinking that somehow I'm going to apply my will, my personal willpower, and I will dominate the situation and make things the way I want them to be, using my competence. And I don't, this is not bad. This is, you know, I, I kind of use the word dominate uh, provocatively on purpose, but, you know, that's basically what it is, using competence using energy to try to make something happen. And then we never really get what we're looking for, safety and in a permanent sense. And so then we feel betrayed and we want to give up. With it Somehow, surprisingly maybe, helplessness seems to make sense, giving up, being a victim, being distracted, thinking it doesn't matter. You know, just the different ways we have of disconnecting. And the middle way, the not this and the not that, is this path of awakening, is really understanding the essence of what the Buddha means with this section of the path that's called samadhi. Wise effort, wise mindfulness, wise concentration, and they work together. Wise effort is about understanding what hinders intimacy and what supports it. And we're preventing and abandoning what hinders intimacy. And we're developing and maintaining the qualities of the heart that support intimacy. And then right, wise mindfulness in the more technical sense. I mean, generally mindfulness is remembering that this is being known. But to do that, to really connect with the actuality of the present moment, we have to know all the habits of mind of how it projects meaning, conceptual meaning, on sensation of the body, on the feelings we have, on the mental activities. And then we get confused by our own conceptual or mental projections. And we're in that realm of 
conceptual prol proliferation, mental proliferation, which we take to be reality. That's the problem, is our mental projections are taken to be reality, so we never get any real footing in terms of uh, reality transforming the heart, transforming the view, purifying the view. So a lot of the mindfulness, once we have stabilized awareness, is to learn how to not be confused by the mental projections. Like, what is it to be aware of sensation in and of itself? So we're not taking the experience of the body to be more than what it is, the simplicity of sensation, neither beautiful nor ugly, the body, not something, right, it's, it's just like a river of sensation. And even the sensations we feel, the hardness, the softness, the coolness, the warmth, you know, just the part, the specific characteristics of that unfolding of the body, none of it is very personal. When I feel a lot of warmth in my body, it's not really personal to me, that experience of warmth or coolness, or hardness, or lightness, heaviness, or whatever the particular flavor. You know, I feel some tension in my shoulders right now, but that hardness of that tension, or the heaviness of that tension, or whatever the particular specific characteristics, none of that is really about Mark, specific to me the sort of display or qualities that you experience, that flow of sensation, it has the same hardness, heaviness, lightness, softness, roughness, smoothness, coldness, heat, movement, heldness. You know, the same spectrum of sensation is really the same for all of us. And yet, you know, when I'm feeling hardness, it seems so personal to me, but it isn't really. So this is how the Buddha teaches mindfulness, is how actually to connect with the body, how actually to relate to feeling of pleasantness, unpleasantness, without being confused, thinking that it's more than what it is. So a lot of what mindfulness is, is less about... Um, trying to get to reality, it's really avoiding adding anything and letting reality speak for itself. That's so much of what mindfulness is about, letting reality speak for itself, letting the moment speak for itself. How can I trust it? This is from Thich Nhat Hanh. To love is, first of all, to accept ourselves as we actually are. There really is a benevolent, loving quality about mindfulness because it, it is this capacity to include or to say yes. Um, one of the earlier weeks, I sent you the link for Bhikkhu Bodhi's book on the Eightfold Path. So he has a chapter for each of the eight limbs of the Eightfold Path. And now we're talking about the three 
wise effort, wise mindfulness, wise concentration. This, like I mentioned earlier, is a really great reference. And this is the chapter from the chapter on mindfulness. And Bhikkhu Bodhi, this Western Buddhist monk and uh, one of the great translators of the Pali discourses into English, really have benefited a lot of us here in the West who have um, been studying Buddhism a lot because of Bhikkhu Bodhi's translations. So on the chapter, in the chapter on right or wise mindfulness, he writes, the mind is deliberately kept at the level of bare attention, a detached observation of what is happening within us and around us in the present moment. In the practice of wise mindfulness, the mind is trained to remain in the present, open, quiet, and alert, contemplating the present event. All judgments and interpretations have to be suspended, or if they occur, just registered and dropped. The task is to simply note whatever comes up, just as it is occurring, riding the changes of events in the way a surfer rides the waves on the sea. The whole process is a way of coming back into the present, of standing in the here and now without slipping away, without getting swept away by the tides of distracting thoughts. The tides are the tendencies that I have to do something with the present moment, with what I'm experiencing. And a little later in the next page, the task of wise mindfulness is to clear up the cognitive field. Mindfulness brings to light experience in its pure immediacy. It reveals the object as it is before it has been plastered over with conceptual paint, overlaid with interpretations. To practice mindfulness is thus a matter not so much of doing, but of undoing. Not thinking, not judging, not associating, not planning, not imagining, not wishing. All these doings of ours are modes of interference, ways the mind manipulates experience and tries to establish its dominance. Mindfulness undoes the knots and tangles of these doings, by simply noticing. It does nothing but notice, watching each occasion of experience as it arises, stands, and passes away. In the watching, there is no room for clinging, no compulsion to saddle things with our desires. There is only a sustained contemplation of experience in its bare immediacy, carefully and precisely and persistently. So don't forget that um, small booklet that I sent the PDF uh, in one of the earlier emails. It's really a great resource, um, these uh, writings by Bhikkhu Bodhi. One of the most famous descriptions the Buddha gave to this wisdom awareness really centered around the mind having confidence in this capacity we refer to as mindful awareness, right? So that's the capacity of the mind, the heart, 
to recognize the present moment. Oh, this is being known. This is being known. This is being known. This is being known. So that's the sustaining. So the initial moment when the mind has been lost and then connects with the present moment, that's the moment the mind heart realizes. It's a realization. Oh, this is something being known or felt. That's a real mini insight to go from being lost in thought to a moment of the mind or wisdom, you should say, we should say, wisdom recognizing, oh, what this really is, is this experience being known. So any ideas I have about so-called external reality versus internal None of that, none of those concepts apply because what's really happening, this experience is being known. It's as simple as that. It's being felt. And whatever it is that the knowing mind is knowing in that moment will be fine. So we don't have to like capture the right aspect of the present moment. What's relevant is it's something being known. So I don't, I, won't, I don't have time to go through the backstory, and many of you have heard the story of Bahia, but uh, because it's such a pithy instruction, and he really pressed the Buddha to give him the straightforward, complete teachings in brief. <laughs> and as it turns out, Bahia died shortly after getting these teachings, so it was very timely that he woke up with this simple teaching from the Buddha. And the Buddha sensed his sincerity and, and he would really done a lot of work already. So this is the Buddha's response to Bahia, asking for a brief but complete teaching. They were just standing right there in the street. The Buddha was out just getting his food. So it just had to be very succinct. Then Bahia, you should train yourself thus. In reference to the scene, there will only be seen, the seen. In reference to the heard, only the heard. In reference to the sensed, only the sensed. In reference to the cognized, only the cognized. That is how you should train yourself. When for you there will only be the seen in reference to the seen, only the heard in reference to the heard, only the sensed in reference to the sensed, only the cognized in reference to the cognized, then Bahia, there is no you in connection with that. When there is no you in connection with that, there is no you there. It's just this being known, right? I'm just adding that piece. There is no you there. When there's no you there, you are neither here nor yonder nor in between the two. Just this is the end of suffering. Just this is the end of suffering. One contemporary teacher summed it up as no self, no problem. And so this is what we mean. I'm sure you've heard teachers say, you know, a moment of mindfulness like that famous book by Thich Nhat Hanh. Uh, what is it called? Um, the Miracle of Mindfulness. Right. So a moment of mindfulness is, has the flavor of freedom. Right. Teachers have been saying some version of this for a long time. A moment of mindfulness has the flavor of freedom. Because when wisdom, 
remembers that this is being known. Seen in the seen, there's only the seen. In the heard, there's only the heard. In the cognized, only the cognized. Right? When it's just that simple, something being known, then the sense of self isn't in the knowing, isn't in the object, and isn't between the two. It's just this being known. And when there's no room, no place for a permanent self, there's no place for there to be a problem, for there to be existential weight. Now, I know that sounds philosophical, but we're just setting up, right, with a teaching like this, like all these teachings, they are concepts, right? Because we're talking, we're using words, we're using language and concepts. We reflect on them in terms of our lived, actual, present moment experience. And that's what sets up the realization. Seeing something that's already here, always been here, always will here. But because we've been mostly intoxicated by our mental interpretations, we haven't been what we call practicing because we've been mostly in our mental interpretations of who I am. Even when we think we're practicing, a lot of the times we're just in our mental proliferation around practice. So the idea is to use a teaching like the Buddhist short, succinct teaching for Bahia. You could memorize it even. It would be a good sutta, a good discourse to memorize. Use it, repeat it, reflect on what is that pointing to in terms of how I'm, how awareness, how wisdom is relating to this moment. And you might realize something in a moment about how simple, how real things can be right here and now, when the mind isn't lost in thought, basically. So we're going to end in just a minute. I want to uh, um, emphasize the article that we use for a couple of the courses, but it's I really like how Sarah Dowering writes. And so um, it's Sarah Dowering's article on the five faculties, and it was linked, the link is there in today's email. And she was uh, an IMS teacher, Insight Meditation Society teacher, and great benefactor of IMS and the Forest Refuge in particular. And uh, just a very wise and wonderful person who died recently, about a year ago. And uh, the five faculties, faith, and then the three parts of the Eightfold Path we've been studying, wise effort, wise mindfulness, wise concentration, and wisdom. And it's really an engine. You know, we have some faith to show up to the present moment. We use wise effort to keep the hindering tendencies at bay. We clarify how to connect with reality as it actually is with wise mindfulness. We stabilize that with wise samadhi, wise concentration, and insight, the deepening of wisdom, deepening of understanding, can't be stopped. But we're really looking at like this engine of stabilizing present moment awareness and how the deepening of understanding, like how our understanding gets transformed, cannot be stopped. Because I don't have to deepen my understanding. It's a natural process when 
the mind is in this stable, non-conceptual, intimate relationship with the dance of the present moment. And hope to see you for our last class next Monday night. Have a good week, everybody. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org.